Parades are not my thing. They bore me to tears. If you've seen one parade, I feel like you've seen them all. Some of you get up on New Year's Day and you can't wait to watch the parades. I can't wait till they're over so I can watch the football. I have no interest in parades whatsoever until I came across this one. This parade I like. Can we put this up there? This is called a parade in the hood. You can turn it up a little bit. <laughs> I I watch that and there's a longer clip of it and I go, now that parade I could go to. And especially if I stood next to the lady that was narrating that video. I just want to meet her someday. The parade we're going to read about, there's actual parade that we're going to read about today in Scripture, is even better than that one, and that one's good. That's the best I've ever seen. This is called a Jesus parade, or some people call it the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. This is out of Luke chapter 19. Let's read the story of this Jesus parade. After Jesus had said this, he was doing some teachings with people, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage in Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying this to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one was ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, what are you why are you untying this? Just say, the Lord needs it, okay? Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying our colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. Now let's just stop there, okay? Don't check your brain out here. If your car was parked outside and I started to get into your car and you go, why are you getting into my car? And I said, God needs it. Would you just go, all right, all right? This is amazing faith by the owners of this donkey right here, okay? The Lord needs it, okay? I think we're in right now. Oh, no. They brought it to Jesus through their cloaks, their coats on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road in front of him. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all of the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They were singing and shouting praise. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Make them stop. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones on the side of the road will cry out in worship and praise. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone standing on another because you did not recognize the time of the Lord's coming to you. 
Let me highlight a few things out of this passage about a Jesus prayed. First, this, the parody. The Jesus prayed that you just read about here is not the only parade that was taking place in Jerusalem at this time. Around this time of year, every year, Jews from every region on the planet would descend upon Jerusalem to celebrate a particular holy day. The holy day was called Passover, and it commemorated a time when God had rescued the people from their Egyptian oppressors. In the time of Jesus, it's believed that right around 200,000 Jews would have descended upon Jerusalem. So this was this massive, raucous, joyous celebration, kind of like Woodstock was in the 1960s, except no Jimi Hendrix and all the drugs and sex and stuff. Okay, so there was none of that. So imagine here, use your brains here. Here's Pilate. He is a Roman leader. He is a Roman leader, and he's watching this mass of humanity descend upon Jerusalem to celebrate a time when they were rescued by God from an oppressive nation. And currently, he's one of the the leaders of a nation, Rome, that was oppressing these people again. He was the latest line in oppressors, and he was probably getting nervous thinking, what if another liberation attempt takes place? What if they try to liberate themselves from me? And so he did something right before Passover when all these people would have been gathered in Jerusalem. He gathered a large part of his army and he marched from his palace into the city of Jerusalem. And it was quite a display. All the army people would have been dressed in full battle array, marching in step with one another. And Pilate was leading this parade on top of this magnificent war horse. Romans at this time called displays like this triumphs. This was Pilate's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That's what was happening here. And he was making a point to the Jews. Don't even think about a revolt. It won't go well for you if you do. It was a display of domination, power, and violence. Well, Jesus also had a triumphal entry, but his was just the opposite of Pilate's. It was actually a parody of Pilate's. Parody just means that you imitate someone or something and usually with exaggeration in order to bring ridicule or comedy to that scene. Saturday Night Live, that TV show, makes a living on parodies. They parody famous people, and especially politicians. And by the way, they're having a field day right now, okay? If you've not watched some of their parodies. Jesus had this triumphal entry, and it was a parody, okay? That's what was happening. His triumphal entry is a parody of what Pilate did and he was making a point to the people that what Pilate was doing was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. I mean think about it. Pilate came into Jerusalem riding from the west on top of a war horse. Jesus came into Jerusalem riding from the east on top of a baby donkey. You cannot look cool and mighty and powerful riding a baby, not just a donkey, a baby donkey. Example A, let me put this on the screen for you. Look at this guy. You can't look cool. Nobody is afraid of him, okay? If he came riding into town, even into Eugene right now, you wouldn't think, ooh, scary, mighty leader, okay? That's how people would have thought when they saw Jesus riding into Jerusalem, okay? Think about every U of O football game like the glorious one that took place yesterday, okay? 
and one of my friends is a coach for the Huskies, so it was particularly glorious for me. But every duck game starts the same. The fog comes in on the tunnel, and the duck mascot rides into the stadium very triumphant-like on the back of a powerful, loud Harley Davidson. It's a display of power. Imagine if the next duck game starts, okay, the next home game starts, and the fog happens in the, in the tunnel, and then the duck comes riding out on a big wheel. It just wouldn't have the same effect. That's how the people would have felt when they just watched Pilate ride into town, and now Jesus comes on a donkey? Are you kidding me? It's like a great parody. And this is this to fulfill the words of an ancient prophecy in the Old Testament portion of the Scripture out of the book of Zechariah, which I just want to read to you. It's just a few verses, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, a baby donkey. So Jesus riding in Jerusalem in fulfillment of this prophecy was his way of saying, I'm the king you've been told about. I'm the king you've been waiting for, that you've been looking forward to, but I'm nothing like what you saw Pilate doing because my kingdom's not about power and violence and and domination. My kingdom is about peace and love and serving people. Now, it's interesting to me that we're celebrating um, and we're reading about this Jesus parade at a week when Columbus Day was celebrated in the United States. I don't know how that guy got a day in his honor. He was no hero. He was barbaric. He discovered a new world, kind of like the asteroid discovered the dinosaurs, okay? It was all destruction and death and chaos. In 1492, when he arrived in Hispaniola, the new world, the population of the new world was right around 4 million people. Just a few short years later, because of Columbus and his troops in 1520, the population was 20,000. Do the math. He was a slave trader and a barbarian, and yet we give him a day. Read history. The story you've been told about Columbus isn't true. Read through history. You'll discover that this is true. He was a barbaric person, yet we give him a day, and I'll tell you why. Because we live in a culture that is addicted to power and violence and war and control. We actually go so far as to believe in the myth of redemptive violence. We think violence can actually bring about good things like peace. So we build bigger bombs and we build bigger guns and we have bigger armies in the name of peace, which is just insane when you think about it. Now, I know this is hard for some of you to think because you've been trained to think this way, but imagine this. If I hold a gun to somebody's head and they do what I'm asking them to do, that's not peace. That's a mugging. That's what that is, okay? Whether it's a person doing that or a nation or a group of nations, to threaten other people is not peace. It's a mugging. And to think violence will bring peace is to participate in the parade of Pilate and to miss out on the much better parade that Jesus is having. Notice in verse 41, it says that Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. And he did this for a reason because he knew that people were going to be blind to the peace that he was trying to bring to them. He knew that. Many people in that crowd thought the only way to get out of this Roman oppression was through a violent war, through a revolt. They thought that's the only answer to the problem of the Romans right now. 
And Jesus foretells what will happen in the last few verses. That's him foretelling this and sad over the outcome. He knew if they thought violence was the answer, it wasn't going to go well for them, and it didn't. Just 40 years after this, after he was speaking to them in 70 AD, a group of Jews did try a violent revolt, and the Romans squashed it, and thousands of people lost their life, and the city of Jerusalem was leveled to the ground. So of course Jesus wept because he knew people seeking violence as an answer, as a way to peace, that's always going to end badly. Violence doesn't bring peace. It brings more violence and usually even worse violence. Anybody that's been around a second grader knows this. Some of you are teachers and you'll break up fights and you'll go, what happened? And you'll go, well, he touched me. Well, he touched me, so I pinched him. Well, he pinched me, so I bit him. Well, he bit me, so I pulled his hair. Well, he pulled my hair, so I kicked him. Well, he kicked me, so I punched him. Oh my gosh, violence begets more violence, even with second graders and usually an escalated form of violence. It never brings peace. You'll never once in your life punch a person in the face and go, do you feel the peace, the shalom that is between us? So if we can't expect that personally, we can't expect that corporately either, okay? I lost my place because I got all fired up there, okay? Okay, where am I? Yes, here I am, okay. So Jesus, this is why this parade is so great. He didn't come into town riding a war horse. He came into town riding a donkey, and he didn't shed his enemy's blood. He shed his own blood because he's showing us the way of peace instead of the way of power and violence. And here's where it gets personal. Many years ago, back in the 80s, I heard a little kid sing at one of the Kennedy Award Center honors, and he sang this song, and he was a little, like, six- or eight-year-old kid. I can't remember how old he was. I just remember he was tiny, but he had this huge, booming voice. And he sang the song, Let there be peace in the world, Lord, but let it start with me. And it was deeply moving for me as I was watching him sing it on television because I felt like it was so prophetic that it was God's word, not just to me, but to our nation. Because that is what God is speaking to us. Because every time we choose to forgive instead of seeking revenge, every time we choose a kind word instead of intimidating, every time we choose to gently correct instead of yelling at somebody in rage, every time we choose to serve instead of control, every time we choose inclusion instead of exclusion, the seeds of peace are planted around us. Peace in the world really does start with us. Jesus famously said one time, blessed are the peacemakers, for you shall be called the children of God. Another way to say that is, you are blessed, you are happy when you do your part to bring peace into the world. Because when you do, you're acting just like Jesus. And that's when life gets really, really good. All right? So that's the first thing, the parody. The second word out of this parade I want us to focus on is regrets. We've all had some regrets in life. I listed, I just want to list four that I came on in my own life right off the top of my head. The first one was this. I had big hair in the 80s, okay? And I don't mean just long hair. I mean big hair. My nickname was Rapunzel. I was going to show you the pictures, but I don't want to, okay? (laughs) I regret the big hair phase of my life, okay? 
I regret also not buying that 1969 Chevelle for only $1,500, which would be worth a fortune right now. I regret that. I regret not standing up for some of the kids in my school that were getting bullied because I was too afraid of the bullies also. I regret that. And I regret one moment with my life, not with my wife, rather, watching La La Land. I will never get those two hours back in my life, okay? So reading through these verses, though, I actually think of regret because here's this crowd. They're bursting into spontaneous worship and praise of Jesus, and yet just a few short days later, many people from this same crowd are going to be yelling and crying out for Jesus to be crucified. They went from hail him as our king to nail him to the cross in just a few short days. And a few short days after that, they would have heard the news that the grave couldn't hold Jesus and that he was miraculously resurrected. And this is good news. This is a world-changing moment, the resurrection of Jesus, but it would have also been a moment that would have caused many of those people deep regret because they thought, oh my goodness, the person I yelled to be crucified actually is the Lord, and he has risen from the dead. So this joyous moment was also a moment of deep regret. But that's why the story we read is so important. You see, the good news is not that Jesus loves us because we're nothing like that crowd. Oh, he loves us because we would have known better. We wouldn't have been so fickle. We wouldn't have yelled praise in one moment and yelled crucify him the next. And I've got to say to you, yeah, we probably would have, okay? We would have given in to that kind of peer pressure. Many of us would have. But the good news isn't that he loves us because we're not like the crowd. The good news is he loves us even when we are like the crowd, even when we do things we know are wrong and we're completely filled with regret because God's grace is greater than any of our regret. That word grace just means getting what you need instead of what you deserve, getting love when you deserve judgment, getting mercy when you deserve condemnation. That's what grace is, getting a gift when you've done nothing to deserve it tell you a great example of it. I was reading recently about a young autistic boy, and he had a prized possession, which was his Game Boy at the time. And if you know any about, anything about kids that are on the spectrum, and I, I have many friends that are, I think we're all on the spectrum, by the way, but that's a whole other conversation. But he had this Game Boy, and it was like his security blanket. It's what he played with and what he held on to when he was going into situations that would cause him an extreme amount of stress in his life. And he went to a doctor's appointment, which I'd love to borrow his Game Boy because I feel that way every time I go to the doctor. And the doctor was mean and rude. Have you ever had a mean doctor? I have a nice doctor right now. He looks like he's 12 years old, but I'm keeping him because he's nice, okay? Well, this kid had a mean doctor, and, and the doctor treated his physical illness but did nothing for his soul or his emotions or his fear, But the boy picked up on it. He goes, man, this guy helped me, and I'm sick. I'm struggling right now, but he's worse off than me. So as he's leaving the office, he turns to the doctor and goes, here, you need this, and gave him his Game Boy. That is an incredible sacrifice. That doctor did nothing to deserve that gift, and yet the boy gave it to him anyway. That's grace. That's a picture of grace, the kind of grace that removes regret from our life. Let me, maybe this will help you lock it into your own life, okay? Some of you are horrific bowlers. You know who you are. I've seen you. You go to the bowling alley and you swing the ball backward and some of you have dropped it on the way back 
not the way forward. Some of you have swung the ball forward and forgot to let go and flung your own body. I saw that happen one day. That was one of the best days of my life. Okay, but not to the person next to me. You flung your body down the stairs or you've thrown gutter balls with such ferocity it's actually leapt over that gutter and gone down into the adjacent lane. You know who you are. You're a horrific bowler. But you don't have the humility to request those buddy bumpers. You know those rubber bumpers they put in the gutters for kids? And it allows you to bowl, and you can bowl just a horde. You actually, many I've seen this. I don't know how you do it, okay, because I'm fairly athletic. Instead of releasing the ball this way, you actually get up there and go like this somehow. And it'll hit the buddy bumper four or five times, and then you'll actually get a strike. You don't deserve the strike, but you got one anyway because of the buddy bumpers. That's what the grace of God is like. It's like spiritual buddy bumpers. You do things, I do things, that gets us offline, off track. But God offers His his love, His mercy, His forgiveness. And not just that, He actually nudges us back on track and gets us where we're going, which is what we sang about today. He gets us where we're going. Our life gets a strike, so to speak. We don't deserve the strike, but we get it because of His grace because of his grace, and that removes all of our regrets. Our regret, it was replaced by this deep sense of gratitude of saying, thank you, God, for the gift of your grace. I didn't deserve it, but I have it. U2 is a band that was famous back in the 80s, and then they got unfamous, and they released another album that's huge right now. Some of you don't like them. I've never been a huge fan. I don't like a lot of their songs, but they wrote a song way back when, and it was called Grace. And I want to put up the words to it because this is brilliant. Grace, she takes the blame. She covers the shame. She removes the stain. It could be her name. Grace, it's the name for a girl. It's also a thought that changed the world. Do yourself a favor and Google that song today and listen to it because it's the perfect song about God's grace. It'll make you so grateful for a grace that's greater than regret. Last word I wanted to focus on is the word worship. This crowd broke into spontaneous worship, singing praises and shouting praises to God. We sing and worship in song out loud here every week on Thursdays and Sundays, which is odd. I've told you this before. It's so odd because we just don't live in a society that sings out loud very often. Okay, if you meet somebody online and you show up to meet them for the first time on a first date, you don't walk into the date, take one look at them and burst into song. Oh, I'm so glad to meet you. You could be the one. I love you. You don't do that, right? You don't eat pizza and you're so ecstatic about how delicious the pizza were was you just burst into song about this food. You don't walk into an elevator the most awkward time socially for any of us in the world and stare at a door. When else do we stare at a door but in an elevator and there's this awkward silence because you're trapped with people you don't know. You don't turn around and say to them, screw the awkward silence. Let's sing, shall we? We all live in a yellow submarine. Join me now, okay? Try it. You can try that. That would be great. Well, in these verses, the people burst into spontaneous praise songs about Jesus. And when some stuffy religious leaders asked Jesus, hey, you've got to make them stop, he says, if I make them stop, the rocks on the side of the road will cry out. And that word cry 
in, in Hebrew. It actually is an interesting word. And in Greek, actually, it means croak, like the sound a frog makes, and to cry like a raven. So evidently, rocks aren't good singers because they sound like ka, ka, or a croaking frog, okay? Jesus is showing us. He's making a point. It's not good that we suppress our worship and praise. You don't want to hear the rocks sing. They suck, okay? And I totally agree because there are so many good reasons for us to let our worship rip, to just burst into songs spontaneously on our own or even in this group of songs of adoration and worship to the Lord. Let me give you a few good reasons too. The first reason is because it's right. Bursting into praise and adoration is just right when you're in the presence of greatness. When you see an athlete make a good play, I'm going to use a football game yesterday, for example, like when we, when we, because I'm a part of the University of Oregon Duck football team, in case you didn't know, but when the Ducks, when the running back ran for the winning touchdown, all of Autzen Stadium, probably all of you watching at home, did what? You didn't sit there. You instantly jumped up, if you're like us at our house, jumped up with your arms up in the air, and you're yelling, and you're dancing, and you don't dance, you don't dance well at least, and you're shouting, you're hugging other people. That's what you do in the presence of greatness. You do that. It's the right thing to do. It would be weird to watch your team win and go, ah, what do you know, okay? When you find yourself in the presence of the greatness that is our God, it's just the right, it's the appropriate thing to do to burst into worship and adoration. The second reason we sing here is because of gratitude. Sometimes we sing because we're just so grateful for all the goodness that God's poured into our life. There's a book called the Talmud. It's an ancient commentary on the Old Testament portion of scriptures. And it says, to enjoy a blessing from God without gratitude is akin to stealing it. That's what it's like. And I thought, how many blessings from God have I shoplifted because I celebrate the blessings and I'm, I'm so grateful for the blessings and I never say thank you to God. We say thank you to God so we don't steal the blessings. Look what First Chronicles verse 16 through 19 says. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. I think there's one more verse, but they didn't put it up there possibly, okay? What it's saying is don't be silent. Say thank you for the blessings in your life. Say thank you. That's a good reason to praise. Thirdly is hope. I don't know about you, but it is so easy for me to get downtrodden, especially when I watch the news. So much evil makes headline. And just two weeks ago, I remember waking up one day and I'd watch the news the night before and I'm going, oh my gosh, I can hardly stand it anymore. I just want to hide in my garage till... All the problems go away. But instead, I sing, and that's a better idea. In Psalm 147, the psalmist, the songwriter, is in despair, and he chooses, instead of hiding, he chooses to sing. And halfway through the psalm, the tenor changes. The whole attitude changes of that psalm writer, and he talks about hope instead of despair. Singing leads you to a place where your hope is rekindled because you're reminded that the evil you see all the time doesn't win, that love wins. That's why I got it on my wrist, my tattoo. Love wins because it restores your hope when you sing praise to God and are reminded you are on your throne, Lord, and the evil is just buying time because eventually love wins. Fourth reason we sing is because of unity. We sing in here every week not just to be drawn closer to God, but closer to each other. Because there's something about singing worship together that draws us together. Because we're singing the same songs, 
using the same words, and we're even syncing our breath together. We're breathing at the same time when we sing worship songs. And so we're drawn closer together because singing always unifies the singer. That's why you can go to a concert, any concert, just any of your favorite groups or bands, and you leave the concert going, wow, that was a spiritual experience. That wasn't a Christian band, but that was a spiritual experience. I feel at one with this audience. That's because it is a spiritual experience when we sing, because singing unifies the singers. You were one with that crowd, just like we're one today through our singing. Mostly, though, the best reason, I think, to worship the Lord is to celebrate. Because when we celebrate God, we're drawn closer to Him. Because human beings are always drawn closer to what they celebrate. So for these reasons and many more, we're going to continue to sing in here every week. Not because God needs it. He's not needy, but we do it. But here's the challenge. These people sang on a good day. It was a parade, it was a holy day, it was a holiday. They were celebrating. It's easy to sing on the good days. It's crucial to sing on the rotten ones. It's crucial because when we sing worship to God on the bad days, we're basically saying, gloominess, you're not going to define me. You're not going to get the best of me. To worship God on a no good, terrible day is to say, wow, my life hurts right now. It doesn't even make sense. But deeper than the confusion and pain that I feel right now is the knowledge that God is good, even today. Now, it's counterintuitive to sing on a bad day. When you wake up and you know you're having a bad day, the last thing you're going to want to do is sing. But sing anyway. It's such a powerful thing. You're going to want to just binge on Netflix and eat chocolate and stay in your jammies. But don't. That's helpful. That actually helps a little bit, but singing is much better. Look at this quote. It's out of a book called Cold Tangerines. Look what she says. There is something just past the heartbreak, just past the curse, just past the despair, and that thing is beautiful. When we worship the Lord, especially on bad days, we are taken beyond our despair into the beauty. That is a good reason for us to keep singing here. Let me pray for us today, and then I'll dismiss us.